0: Hey Redeemer family, this is Kari Faraday. I'm one of the RUA Bible study leaders. In RUA's three years of study, we've never had a round like Joel. For one, it was probably one of the toughest books we've tackled. For another, it was the first we did as a whole church. We had two groups studying Joel, men and women studying together on Sunday mornings during Redeemer Academy, and a group of women studying together on Thursday nights. But most significantly, This is the first time we've had to cancel a study before it was over. COVID-19 closed our church before we could meet to discuss chapter three and take a look at Joel as a whole book. The podcast you're about to hear was recorded by the extended Joel teaching team, all leaders from the Sunday and Thursday sessions. It's our best attempt at having our final meeting and finishing Joel strong. So let's do it. Get your own chapter three notes or even just the study guide questions, this podcast will follow those questions just like any other meeting. The one difference is that we won't spend time reading the passage. So if it's been a while since you were in Joel, pause the recording, read chapter three, and then proceed. Listen to the whole virtual meeting, and then I'll be back with some closing thoughts at the end. Hey, Redeemer family. This is Kari Faraday coming to you live from my living room, and we are here, the extended RUA teaching team uh, for the study of Joel that we had been doing before um, coronavirus took control of our lives and of the study. Um, we are here to record the final meeting for the final chapter, Joel chapter three. Um, I'll let the rest of the team speak up for themselves and say, Hey, and tell us guys, which, uh, which session you were helping to lead.
1: This is Stephen Faraday. I'm also recording from Kari's living room. (laughs) Uh, And I helped lead Sunday morning.
2: Uh, So this is Laura Icardi and I was helping lead Sunday morning Redeemer Academy Rua, as
3: well as the women's Rua.
4: This is Micah Cardi and helped lead on Sunday morning.
3: And I'm Katie Martin. I did Thursday nights. So this is really cool to have the five
0: of us all together in one virtual place to do chapter three together. So with with those introductions, let's get started. Um, Would somebody be happy to briefly open our time in prayer?
1: Sure, I will. Lord God, thank you that we are free to to read your word, to talk about your word together. That we have this opportunity, even though we're all separate in different places. That your word spans space and time and distance, and uh, we we pray for that you will be with us and you will help us to all know you more and know your grace more through. Through this time, and I pray specifically against any technical difficulties. Mm
3: -hmm. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. All right, we're going to aim to keep this short and sweet. Um, Just so everyone at home knows, there are kids in the backgrounds of these recordings. If they appear on the scene, sorry, not sorry. You may also hear teacups and pages turning and sheets rustling, but... um, So basically it's like any other room meeting, I suppose. So let's, (laughs) let's dive in. Okay, team. So let's begin as we usually do with question one from our study questions. What is this passage saying? This is the point where we share our uh, paraphrases. So could a couple of us do that for Joel chapter three?
3: I can go. This is Katie. (laughs) Um, I wrote watch. When I restore Judah, I will judge the nations who terrorized her. Who do you think you are, arrogant nations? Come at me. Give it your best shot. LOL. Watch the sky. <laughs> Watch the sky go dark and the earth tremble when God roars. This time, repentant Judah is secure. Her fields are ridiculously abundant while her neighbors wither away under God's judgment. I like Love that. It.
0: Colloquialisms share... are on limits.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I can share mine. It's pretty short. Cool. I did have a rather high level one. It says the day of the Lord will hold judgment for God's enemies and safety for his people. The level of judgment will be directly correlated to the evil that earns it, while the level of goodness for God's people will be inver- inversely correlated to that abundant evil manifesting in abundant grace. Awesome. Awesome.
0: How did we arrive here in chapter three from chapter two?
4: So I, I feel like this, a couple of different things. I saw a transition from judgment on Israel to judgment on the nations. God is freeing and redeeming his people. And there seems to be a shift in the audience and mm-hmm. also a transition to judgment and a finality. Um, that's a contrast to the previous chapters that really called for repentance and lamenting and turning back. Um, This seems to have a much more, I'm I'm going to do things once and for all, end it type of feel to it.
3: Yeah,
0: I agree. I I described this chapter to myself as having more of an eventual flavor than the rest of the book has. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The big thing that stood out to me is how what the day of the Lord means has significantly changed for Israel because they have repented.
0: Yeah, help me out, team. There was a tipping point in Joel... Where there was, there was the call to repentance, and then there's sort of the assumed
2: yeah. um, obedience to that. Was that the beginning of chapter 2? That was 2, 12 through 17 was the return yeah. to the Lord. And then after that, is the, it's assumed that they did. Right. So at,
0: at verse 18, starting 18, verse 18 <laughs> is, there's the assumption that the people heed this call to repent. Mm-hmm. And then, Katie, as you point out, there's a drastic <laughs> shift in the way they're being spoken to. And now as we arrive in chapter three, we are reading these pictures of judgment, but as Mike pointed out, God's people are not wrapped up in that. And Laura, as I think you said in your paraphrase, there's safety for God's people.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: So we are swiftly approaching the end. Um, There's a very much a feeling of culmination in chapter three, as we come to the end of Joel's vision and the end of the book.
1: Yeah, it kinda it kinda moves from you know this point of restoration to the day of the Lord, which is, you know, I guess if we think of that in terms of God coming, Christ's return. It's it's a moment in time that precedes precedes judgment. You know, more fulsome judgment for
0: everybody. Right. The nations. So now let's dive into the more sort of technical dissection of the passage and we'll begin with um our discussion of the bits that were tricky for us, or the things that we didn't understand. What would you guys offer for this part of the discussion?
3: I had a couple. Um, I wanted to hear more about what we know about the Sibians, Mm -hmm. who we think God's mighty ones are, and what the significance of strangers passing through Jerusalem is.
1: I guess for me, the thing that, I I didn't quite understand is why, you know, in verses nine and 10 9 through twelve, there's this call towards war, and then there's, uh, then there's this imagery of of harvest. Maybe that's harvest of those who
4: uh, die in the war. I'd like a discussion about the Valley of Josephat. Mm-hmm. and just more context and background on that. Um, and then I flagged this, but I had, I did no study on it. He talked about the Greeks. Um, and I thought that was an interesting people group to be brought up in the Old Testament and was curious how that fit in historical context.
0: Yes. Yeah. The Greeks. I had that
2: flagged as well. The Sabians. The Sabaeans are verse 8. All right, cool. Yeah, the Greeks are specifically verse six.
0: All right, we are lining it up. Some of the other things that came in from other participants that emailed to us was the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And also it was pointed out the call to warfare, like you were saying, Stephen,
2: following that theme through this chapter. There was more feedback from another member who essentially was maybe bothered by the fact that while it seems like there's quick, opportunity for mercy for God's people, there is not the same mercy being offered to the people who are referred to as God's enemies in this passage. And just wondering why, why those people are not offered an opportunity to repent and serve God and receive mercy the way that God's people are.
0: Yeah. Good question. So just the, the ever present question of judgment and the interaction of judgment with, with repentance and the opportunity to do that. Right. Right throughout Joel. Um, Okay, let's, let's start in. um, Let's address first the, we'll call them people groups, if you will, the Sabaeans, the Greeks, and maybe the strangers um, who are passing through the city or not, because I think those will go pretty quick. Um, Let's start with the Sabaeans. Did, did anybody read anything in their study that, you felt helped clear that up
3: yes i think we had a an interesting cross-reference in there to first kings ten one um that references the queen of sheba which doesn't exactly clear it up but i guess uh, just indicates that they believe that the sabians and the queen of sheba are somehow related
0: yeah most of the commentary that i read in studying for this passage agreed that these Sibians were the people of Sheba, which is modern day, like Arabian Peninsula. And if you said that was verse eight, Katie.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes. yes.
0: I will sell your sons and daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sibeans, to a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. So that if it is modern day Arabia, that, that is far away. And that's in contrast to the enemies of God who have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far away from their own borders. Mm -hmm. So geographically, that would make sense. All right. How about the Greeks, which I just brought up? And the question here was more about why, why mention the Greeks and does that help us with dating? Was that right, Mike?
4: Uh, Just why the Greeks? Not even into, (laughs) it doesn't help us with dating. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Who cares
2: about dating? Yeah. Any work done here? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it does speak to dating. I didn't do a deep dive on this. Um, I'm more so looking back on the deeper dive I did with the introduction, but to me, it does support a later dating of the book because it suggests that the Greeks had, um, a much stronger hold on the region. So those were the later years when the Greeks really had become a much more powerful people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean we can't yeah. date the book earlier, but it does make sense if we take that meaning. Yeah, it does. Um, and I'll
0: add, this was another place that I, I chose to turn to commentary uh, just for extra help. And the commentary I read that this was referring to Greek speakers who lived on both sides of the Aegean. So even into present day Turkey, um, which just supports like what you were saying, Laura, that they were, they had a stronger hold in a wider region. Mm hmm. Um, Okay, so that's the Sibians, that's the Greeks. Let's go on to the strangers. Katie, can you, um, this was later. Yes, it's at the very end, I
3: think. 17, 17B. 17B. Yes, it says, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Right.
0: Katie, did you read this in any other translations looking for more?
3: Um, I also read it in the NASB that had passed through it also. Um,
0: I have the NIV and the HCSB in front of me as well. And I'll read this verse in those. Um, NIV says, then you will know that I, the Lord, your God dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. And then the HCSB, the second part of that verse says, Jerusalem will be holy and foreigners will never overrun it again. So looking at some of these other translations, it seems a little more, um, maybe not violent, but oppressive, these strangers, um, rather than the more tame uh, passing through. Um, so this this lends kind of a flavor of safety. With these strangers not passing through, it gives an idea that um, <laughs> jerusalem is safe as the lord dwells there what about cross-referencing did anybody dive into that
1: when i looked at it it was mostly about zion and the holiness of
4: jerusalem and it wasn't i didn't catch anything specifically strangery. well so there's there, there's revelation cross-references that talk mm-hmm. specifically about those who are outside and not within the city by the gates um so i think there's elements of like god's people and not god's people um, yes and -hmm. there being that separation between those that are saved and redeemed um and those that are not
2: yeah i very much i very much read this part as a it's a future promise not necessarily for a geographical jerusalem but for a spiritual jerusalem Mm -hmm. um and Because of the context of chapter three, it seemed as though, uh, as you said earlier, Kari, it had kind of a a future flavor or an eventual flavor. An eventual flavor, Um, yeah. And so I read this verse in that eventual flavor context that really what we're talking about here is kind of the new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem that will exist at the end of the ages when Jesus has returned and restored everything the way it should be. Um, And in that case, people who don't belong won't be there. (laughs) There's a
3: um, a cross-reference in Zechariah 1421 that I actually think connects to the Gospels in an interesting way. Uh, The Zechariah passage reads, Mm -hmm. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And that reminds me of uh, when Jesus clears out the temple of all the people trying to profit off of the worship um, and lends just kind of this yeah. tone of these strangers or merchants like cheapening the holy things or like not, maybe not cheapening them, but like not giving them reverence, not treating them as holy.
0: Yeah. Yes. That's traitor with a D. Yes. Not a D. Oh yeah. For the listeners. Yeah, for the listeners.
1: But even more so, I mean, with that cross-reference, it's, you know, they're moving from a place where you have specific vessels for sacrifice, for boiling of the sacrificial meat, for those things. Everything becomes holy, you know, moving moving away from the priesthood to a broader sense of priesthood among all of God's people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I think we're, we're tugging at a couple of themes here. It seems like the idea... Of maybe we could call it, cleanness or purity, that will be the the only state of existence when Christ has gathered His people to His city, um, as well as the safety that will necessarily exist there because everything, um, everything bad will have been done away with. Um, I I am fully in the camp that this is a more eventual promise, and this is describing that restored state at the end of things. Yeah. Well, if there if there aren't more thoughts on that, can I move us on? Absolutely. Of <laughs> yes, please do. All right, let's do it. So this appears a few times. Um, help me out, team. It appears in verse 1, verse 12, and then you could argue it's back in verse 14, where it's yeah. called the Valley of Decision.
2: And... Is that it that might be it yeah okay so what's going
0: on there um one of one of our participants sent us this question what is the valley of jehoshaphat just simply that so i think that's a fine way to phrase our discussion here what is it guys yeah did anybody dive here in any of those verses or in the combination of work for those verses what did you guys come up with
4: Um, I found a definition that Blue Letter Bible had that said it was a symbolic name of a valley near Jerusalem, which is the place of ultimate judgment, maybe the deep ravine which separates Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives through which the Kidron flowed.
2: Well, HCSB, and that's Holman Christian Standard Bible, has a footnote for Valley of Jehoshaphat that says, um, it just has an equal sign and says, the Lord will judge like right after Jehoshaphat. So um, I think that Jehoshaphat means, as many names in the Bible have a meaning, it means the Lord will judge. And so the valley would be like the place where the Lord judges. Um, So to me, it didn't necessarily have to correlate to a specific geographical location. It was more so, um, more like a state of being or a state of happening. Um, So that's how I read it. Yeah, I I
0: read it the same way. And then um, the the context put together with every translation I read had some kind of note explaining that Jehoshaphat means something like the Lord will judge Mm -hmm. the context, the meaning of the Lord will judge. Um, It seems clear what we're dealing with here, even if we can't pin it to a geographical location. But it does seem like this is referring to a pointed time of judgment more than a a place on a map. So all this together, I come down on the side of the Valley of Jehoshaphat being more figurative, more attached to the act of judgment that God is going to perform at the end of times than a a place on a map. That's that's exactly what I would say.
3: Yeah, sounds good to me.
1: That's how how I saw it too.
0: Cool. All right, well, (laughs) The list was not terribly long for Joel 3. The remaining item is the imagery of war. How do you guys see war functioning in this chapter? What is it being applied toward? And I'm I'm trying to cast a wide net here so that if there's anything specific from anywhere across the whole chapter where there was cross-referencing or work in other translations that you did, I just I want you to be able to share it now. Hmm. So so go ahead.
3: <laughs> Let's
0: talk about war.
3: I will note that um, all of the things that God is paying these nations back for are acts of war against Israel.
0: That is true. Those are the things listed. In right. The yeah. Taking see.
3: away possessions, selling people, um, taking land that's God's land.
0: I, I'll say that I
3: noticed w- war has been kind of a theme throughout Joel. In chapter two, we
0: saw that God had an army um, and it seemed to be an army that was coming to perform his judgment. And so it, it doesn't seem strange to me to arrive here in chapter three and be hearing more about warfare, yeah. um, to be seeming to receive this picture of God through war judging the nations it seems cohesive with the rest of the book of Joel that I would read these things. I agree, mm-hmm.
1: but it's interesting that he calls appears to call all the nations. You know, it's not, he doesn't just call his people to war. He calls every. Well, I think
3: the the calling to war now, isn't to actually fight. Like the calling to war is like come all to the same place to receive judgment. It's kind of like come all to the same place to like stand off with God. Is how I read it.
0: Yeah, that that's how I remember. like come take a basically.
3: Beer. <laughs> come.
2: Yeah.
0: Come and get what you deserve. Yeah. I thought There's... it was
2: interesting too that like there were there were portions in the Bible where I actually underlined this in is the one I'm using to hold up our microphone right now. So I'm not looking into it. But I throughout Joel there are different little pockets where it talks about gathering certain groups of people like of God's people together to proclaim something or to consecrate a fast or consecrate. Um, uh, to get a solemn assembly, those kinds of things. And now they're, now it's not just God's people; it's all the nations. And they're not consecrating a fast; they're consecrating a war. And I just thought it was a really interesting. Um, that he that he's, he uses a lot of the same language that he's been using throughout Joel now, to uh, call the people together for not fasting, not mourning, not lamenting, not even repenting. But like now, it is time for the rubber to meet the road. Like now it's time for the consequences of everything to happen like once and for all in that eventual and timey kind of way. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Um,
0: so if we were to, to just chew on together this, this question that was submitted to us, why, why does it seem like there is no opportunity for repentance at this point? And this is maybe, Uh, just from our broader knowledge of scripture. um, How how would we, how
2: would we chew on that guys? I think my first thought is that um, for God to give any of us any chances for mercy is already incredibly generous uh, and more than we deserve. And so I think there, there has to be a category where we say the fact that the other nations have used up God's last nerve <laughs> is, is just um, yeah. and it it's uncomfortable. And we, we have to face that. We don't, we don't have to like this necessarily. I don't love every piece of scripture I read, even though maybe I should, but I don't. Um, but knowing that our God is just means that um, sometimes when we want mercy to to be the thing that happens it's just it is too late even i mean we even see this for people in the family of god among the people of god when um judgment is exacted against somebody within the within israel or judah who has just gone too far and god is like burn them stone them you know um and so I think that as much as we want to see mercy, it's it's not always going to be there.
3: I also want to add that I think that there is the freedom to read in Joel 2, when God talks about pouring out his spirit on all flesh, that that's a post-Jesus thing. And that is so that, yeah. which means that God's spirit, the opportunity to participate in God's spirit has been made available to all mankind, which means that um, who Jerusalem is in this very, very, very last day of the Lord would be the whole people of God. Um, so yes. it's not like mm-hmm. it's only Jerusalem and the Israelites who are being safe and saved in Zion and everyone who's not an ethnic Jewish or an Israelite person is excluded from that group. It's more about um, like states of heart. So, I think it's like pretty established in Scripture that at some point, God will come back, and it will be very dramatic, and then chances are over for everyone. Right. Okay. That's sort
1: of what I was thinking, too, because you know, right after that passage it talks about, you know, shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there is Opportunity up to up until the day of the Lord prior to judgment to, to repent, to call. Right.
3: On. And I think the other thing to like look at is that God is also like being really clear about what He's punishing these groups of people for, and they are like very weighty crimes, like against God and against other people. It's not like God is just like, I don't like you, so. Like here's some judgment.
4: (laughs) Uh. Yeah, I think there's like we're making we're making an assumption of the text that that hasn't happened or that like this one passage is suddenly out of the no out of the blue or nowhere. Uh, I think that it's that we have to be careful not to read that into the scripture of like oh well God didn't give him the chance to repent. Well there's, I mean, Joel's probably quoting decades and centuries of history here with a lot of these folks.
0: Yes, that's true. When speaking about the specific people groups, yeah, these names would have, uh, would have had a history attached to them. You're right, Mike. Um, And and I I think we're we're grappling when it comes to this question of judgment and and opportunity to repent. We're kind of, as we, we talked about on Thursday night, we're sort of, we have to understand with Joel, he's kind of weaving in and out of different prophetic planes and some of it seems to be very presently applicable to the immediate readers. And some of it seems to be more of a prophecy that will be fulfilled eventually, which we as new Testament readers would come to this and we'd apply some of the knowledge that we have from our standpoint in redemptive history, which um, everybody I think has done very well. Um, If I were to try and sum us up, and these are even bigger themes for all of Joel wrapping up the ideas that God is just He has been very clear about what he requires of his people. Um, He wants their hearts. And a point is going to come when there is no more opportunity to repent and no more mercy will be given. But that is at the end. Yeah. Is that a a good summary, guys? Yeah. I, I think we might have already kind of touched on this. Is there anything important to note? This passage
2: is not saying to us. I think just going back to verse 17, when we were kind of um, trying to make that one clear, when it says strangers shall never again pass through or foreigners shall not overrun it. I think it's just important to say that that's not saying that uh, there will never again be foreigners or strangers who um, come into the actual physical Jerusalem throughout history. Because of course we have seen that happen throughout history. Um But I I could see somebody using this as like a sort of a proof text against the inerrancy of scripture uh, by taking it to be a too literal Mm. interpretation there. And so I think that we need to just, just say it clearly that this is not this is not saying that Jerusalem as a literal physical city will never again have enemies, foreigners, strangers coming through it with ill
3: intentions. Agreed. That's not what it's saying. Um, For verse eight, I think it's important to say that this does not mean that God thinks slavery is okay, and it does not make slavery or like vengeance on limits for any of us. Like, it's really clear that God is the one who's in charge of consequences to the nations, it's not Israel doling out consequences to the nations.
0: That's really good, Katie. Yeah, good. Cool. Well, at this point, since we have, despite everything and like really, truly in a new way, everything, this time, (laughs) we have made it to the end of this book. And since we have, um, as we come through our study guide questions, um, five, six, seven, learning about God, ourselves and thinking about our response to what we read, I want to not only hold this down to chapter three, but I want to open it up to all of Joel.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What have we learned about God?
2: I've just been struck throughout all of Joel and, and it does appear here in chapter three as well by how sovereign God is in terms of his power and in terms of his generous provision, um, but also in terms of his, eventual judgment. Um, But just this idea that God is, he is sovereign over everything, whether it's a literal locust plague, whether it's an army invading a land, um, whatever it is, war um, that God is completely sovereign over, over that over droughts, over fire, over crops. Um, And so it's just been a reminder to me that everything that I do have really is only by the grace of God. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and anything that I don't have or anything that is taken from me, I know that that didn't happen without the permission of God.
3: Yeah. Amen. One of the things that stuck out to me from chapter three was just the way that God protects the place he lives and the significance of God actually settling down and dwelling in Jerusalem I think it's just beautiful and um, reassuring to think about like God living presently with us and like all of the power and abundance that he brings towards protecting and providing for his home. Yeah. I want to read something we were sent by one of the ladies attending Thursday night.
0: Um, she says, I see God's protection over what is his My people, my inheritance, my land, my gold, my treasures, my holy mountain, and his wrath for his enemies. I'm thankful that I am his, but I can't help but have an increased sense of urgency for people to repent and also be his. Being an enemy of God is a fearful thing. Mm, That's good. I thought that was very powerful. Yeah.
1: I was also thinking about that, His those words, behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, and and thinking about the fact that Israel did nothing to deserve to be God's heritage. Like you think all the way back to the Genesis of this nation, it is God's choice of one man to make a nation out of him. This man did nothing, you know, we're not told that he did anything to earn this. It is, it was all God. And that extends forward through time to to the nation of Israel And then more so to us, you know, we, we become God's people and his heritage, but out of nothing we have done ourselves.
2: The only thing he requires of us that we see throughout Joel is repentance and turning to him, which is, you know, the fact that he overlooks our sin and our sort of our unworthiness and all he says is just, Basically just say you're sorry and follow me. Right. <laughs> right. He doesn't require us to like make up for anything or to earn anything um, is incredible. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Here's a, another thing we were sent is just the simple words God initiates justice. <laughs> he also initiates forgiveness. Yeah. And that seems that seems a good banner over mm-hmm. the book. So we've seen that over and over through Joel, um, those things about God. So maybe in relation to that, which we know about God from Joel or things that we have just had exposed about ourselves as we've read. Let's move on to learning about ourselves now. What have we learned about ourselves as we have read Joel?
4: But I think there's uh, a constant reminder of the seriousness of sin and what it can lead to both in um, short term consequences and judgment, uh, whether it's you know loss of crops and good things um, or the reality of the eternal judgment in chapter three and just the importance to realize, you know, thankfully in, in our state that we've been justified from that and don't have to uh, face the finality of it in chapter three um, but even just the day in day out in you know more kind of thinking about like what the israelites uh, faced in in one and two um, that there are consequences to it and that need to be aware of it need to repent of it need to run far from it Mm -hmm. um, and realize that there are consequences for it Um, you know maybe maybe direct maybe indirect Uh, if nothing it creates you know a separation from God in the moment and just the need to yes. confess and repent from it.
2: I'm struck by how just in the beginning of Joel, when everything is stripped away, um, which I, I read it to be literal locusts, but you know, it's the crops are gone and the trees are, even the bark is stripped uh, and fires have destroyed part of the land and the trees. And there's just, there's nothing. Um and yet, the thing that the the thing that Judah is instructed to lament over is the fact that there are no wine or grain offerings to bring to the Lord. Yeah. Um, the lament is a lot less about their own joy, although that is included in there. Um, but it is primarily focused on just the the sadness and the grief that God is not getting what is due to Him, um, and And I'm, I'm just struck by how I don't do that. Like when, when things like, even now we are all in this like social isolation, distancing, quarantine, pandemic, weird world, dystopia society. (laughs) It's so easy to think, oh, this is so hard for me. And I miss my friends and those kinds of things. And how, how slowly my mind and heart go to, um, just lamenting what this means for uh, the church um, and the church worshiping as a unified body together, even though we are all worshiping in our own homes. Um, but, but just thinking in terms of the corporate body of Christ and the corporate church and how, um, just how everyday events or the consequences of sin affect God and God's people and turning kind of upward and outward more than I turn inward um, and lamenting, lamenting when God is not getting his due um, or lamenting when um, the church is hurting um, more than I think about myself hurting.
0: I don't know if I'm making sense with that, but. No, it does make sense. It, it, uh, it corresponds with something that we were also sent by another participant. Um, She writes, I still can't get over that Joel had to tell people what to do and how to feel in the face of obvious calamity and disaster, (laughs) weep, mourn, wail. It's a wake-up call against complacency, this person says, for themselves, but I think we can extend it to all of us. And they wrote, I really love how Joel constantly restores the calling to know and love God, that no one is deemed unqualified. We must only turn and rend our hearts and repent. So that matches up with what you're saying in a way, Mm -hmm. Laura. Yeah, Um, put much more beautifully. Another participant um, writing about what they learned about God in themselves. They wrote, the book of Joel helps you see the different aspects of God's character and how they work together. His love and his mercy, but also his holiness and his justice. It It highlights our need to remember his compassion and our need to take God seriously and repent. And I think that resonated with me because the big thing that I have taken away from Joel as a whole is just the urgency to repent. And the fact that God, while the opportunity stands to repent, he is gracious and merciful and ready to forgive. Yeah. And I want to act like I believe that is true about him. So I've kind of bled yeah. as usual, bled into question seven, how should I respond to what I've learned about God and myself? I, I kind of just gave my action. I want to be more active in my repentance. Mm-hmm. I want to be shaken out of my complacency and more active in in my repentance. Yeah. What about you guys?
1: I was going to say the same thing. Repent. The day of the world is
0: near. <laughs> wow. <laughs> High drama here tonight. Uh, that?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's
3: no other way to think about it, but That's
0: how I feel, but I wonder how how others are interacting with
3: the book. That that first part is is also the first part of mine. And then my follow-up was um, meditating kind of on how very little in Joel is required of me other than these heart turns. And this, after the heart Mm -hmm. turn of eager repentance, all that's really left for me to do is to trust God to judge and repay in his timing, judge, repay, provide. Right.
1: Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, he's, God doesn't call Israel to, Hey, get your due back, you know, because you, because these things have happened to you, you know, he does.
3: Right. And God doesn't even say, Hey, get back into the fields and like repair those trellises for your vines. It's just this picture of, no, my right. provision for Israel is so abundant that the mountains are flowing with wine.
2: I also, with the idea of lamenting from back in chapter one, um, it's a it's a category that I haven't really spent much time uh, like learning about in my life, in my spiritual walk. So I've reached out to a friend who who has learned a little bit about what it means to pray, a prayer of lament um, because she's done a deeper study on it and I've reached out to her and asked her, if she would kind of um, teach me a little bit more about that. And um, so that's just, that's one thing I took out of Joel when I saw some of that happening and Joel and realized, I, I don't know that. I mean, I know, but what does, what does lament look like that complaining does not? And, and I have some ideas on that just from scripture, of course, but, um, but wanting to dig deeper on that. Uh, That's one way that I'm responding to Joel is by digging into that and trying to learn a little bit more about what that means and how I can participate in that as a believer. Well, if there's not more on
0: how we are learning to respond to Joel, maybe I'll wrap us up. Any other thoughts before I close us? No, everyone seems fine. So there's a lot in chapter three. (laughs) Actually, let me read one more thing that was sent to us as something that was learned over all of Joel. This participant said, I also learned that even after rigorous study, I am not always going to understand everything about a passage. And that is okay. (laughs) Amen. There were some confusing (laughs) parts of Joel and there are some confusing parts of chapter three, but I found that. I was just heartened greatly by hearing the very final phrase, the Lord dwells in Zion. And I want to close this with that because that idea, if God has moved in to Zion, if he is living in Jerusalem, he's with his people. And as Katie talked about Jerusalem, I believe, I agree with her, is extended to all of God's people, all who have put their faith, in Jesus, and this means that all the promises throughout scripture are coming to a consummation. And it made me think of Revelation 21 3. So I'll just read that and then I'll pray to close us. And that will be our study for Joel. Revelation 21 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Lord Jesus, we're so happy to belong to you. We're so happy that we look forward to this day when you dwell with us and we dwell with you and you are with us as our God. Thank you for making it possible through Jesus' death in our place. Please help us to learn to lament. Please help us to rend our hearts before you and repent of our sin. And please help us to um, rejoice in all that you have done. Um, Please make us ever more ready for that day, Lord God. Thank you for the book of Joel. Thank you for this study. Thank you for technology that has let us complete it against all the odds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Kari again. We did it. Despite all, we finished Joel. Now that we've completed our study, I want to close us with a few observations. I had the privilege to help lead both Sunday mornings and Thursday nights, and it was amazing how the two groups saw many of the same things. First, everyone noticed God's judgment. There is no escaping this theme throughout the book. We saw clearly that God is just. He takes sin very, very seriously, and we should as well. But everyone also noticed that God calls people to repentance and that he is merciful. And ready to forgive. Everyone rightly took these two aspects of God's character and saw how it pointed to Christ. God hasn't changed. He still is completely just. He still calls us to repent of our sin and still shows mercy. But he now does this through faith in the once for all sacrifice of Christ in our place, rather than the perpetual sacrifices brought to the temple in Joel's day. As we discussed in this meeting, Chapter three, though intense, is a final picture of God rising up in protection of his people. Church, through Jesus, this is our future, blessed, gathered in, and secure, with God dwelling among us. This is cause for rejoicing. So as we close out this study, brothers and sisters, I invite you to be diligent in your repentance. Take your sin as seriously as God does, but also remember that God is ready to forgive, and a day is coming when Jesus will return and we will be with God forever. This is reason for great rejoicing. Thanks for studying with us, Redeemer. I hope to be with you all again in person very, very soon.